Welcome to another episode of Sounds Like These. I'm Lara, I'm your host, and I'm back with another interview, this time with Saida Blunt. Saida is a very experienced, she's got over 20 years of experience in music curation, programming, radio, lifestyle, culture, magazines, fashion. She started out as a music journalist because of her love for music. She moved to New York City to study and develop her career there. She touched on life in New York City back then, the early 2000s, up until today. But I think the very interesting bit about this interview is how it can resonate with someone who's really into music, knows a lot about music, music is their life, but they're not musicians. This episode may resonate a lot with some of our music business students who are not necessarily artists and creatives, and also some of the people that may join our brand new courses in digital marketing, soon to be launched in September 2022. Saida now works at Sonos. She's the exec producer for Sonos Radio, so she curates different radio stations, and her main job is basically to listen to a lot of music, just to put it in very simple terms. She also touched on ageism in the music industry. She's in her 40s and she's also a black woman, so she delved into that, which was really interesting. And also shared some advice for people who love to make a good playlist, think they can span through many different genres and get into subcultures and the stories behind the music and how to make that their job. It is possible, there are many opportunities out there, so If this is what you're into, you don't want to miss this interview. Thanks again for listening. I loved talking to Saida. I cannot wait to meet her in person, maybe in New York City. Who knows? Thank you and until next time. Hi, Saida. How are you? Hi there. I'm good. Thank you so much. It's actually a nice and sunny day here in New York City. So I think it's lifted my spirits quite a bit. How are Um, you doing? I'm I'm good and um to be honest with you this morning was sunny as well in London and it's not now it's raining so I'm a little bit jealous now. Seems <laughs> <laughs> so oh, par yeah. for the course for, <laughs> for yeah. London. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Of course, I was really 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 excited to have you on the podcast because I think what you do your career but also what I seem to understand about you in terms of like, you know, how everyone is like stalking each other on social media and just researching yeah. uh, your music taste and the stuff that you got involved with is just um, covers quite a lot of areas within the industry. And also it's just, I don't know, it's super interesting to me and, you know, I just want to get into it. So I have quite a lot Great. of questions, but I'm just going to get started now. I would like to start with, I just want to know if there was a moment or something that you can kind of like go back to in terms of understanding that you wanted to make music something more than just you know a hobby or a passion like turning it into a career yeah I probably would have to say that New York City will do that to you um I moved here in 1998 and I actually moved here for a completely different purpose I moved here for school And, you know, all of my life, I'd pretty much assumed I was going to be involved in academics, but I landed here in New York City, and it's a 24-hour city. I had never been around a place where clubs and venues and um, secret little dive bars and secret little dance places 
we're just going to like five or six in the morning. I mean, where I grew up, everything closed at like one o'clock, two o'clock being very late. And that's considered like my mom would be like, why are you coming home so late? So being somewhere in New York City where you could just literally be out till 5 a.m., go home, take a couple hours worth of sleep and then go to classes, um, that just kind of blew my mind. And then just seeing that all of those bands that I had been reading about in magazines and um, loving for all all of these years, it could be like three of them playing at venues across the city in one night. So there were some evenings where I would go to an early show and a middle, like a mid evening and then go to a dance club at night. And that to me, just having that access to music 24 seven, comparing it to, you know, I wasn't having the best time in school. Um, school was great. It, school was easy, but it wasn't the program that I wanted. It made it a really easy choice. And you know, I just met really amazing people that were um, just as big a music fan as I were was. And um, it just showed me that, you know, music is the lifeblood. I really do believe that it's the lifeblood of New York City. It's the soundtrack. Um, it keeps people pumping. You know, at that time, I think it was a little bit more egalitarian. You can move here with like 20 bucks in your pocket, not literally $20, but you could move here kind of broke as a broke student and still go out and have a life and meet people. And um, that kind of sold me. It took a, I was like, it took a year and I was like, I, I want to work in music. I think there are quite a lot of similarities with London as well. It's, it's whatever, like everything you were saying, I was kind of like relating to, because it's just, uh, I understand. Um, and I wish we could like people could now move to London with like $20 in their pockets because it's, yep, I hear you. Um, and um, so what was the kind of like first proper job that you had within the industry? Because then of course I want to get to the point where you started working for NPR, which I'm really interested to hear about. But what was the first kind of like step? Um, you know, while I was in school, I took up an internship at this um web 2.0 I don't know if people old enough understand that period where like you know the internet had already launched in a very very basic form and then there was this kind of like 2.0 period where it was like refreshing itself and you know graphics and imagery were getting better and you could like chat and email was getting really big and um the obvious transition was getting music and lifestyle things on so people were just chucking tons of money into the this internet and web 2.0 so I was working for a very early progenitor called platform.net um, that was started by a guy named um, Ben and a woman named Tina that covered music and cultural lifestyle so um, skate culture street, the very beginnings of streetwear um, they were looking for somebody to come in as an intern um, to write, do the hustling, hand out flyers, everything, you know, the whole game that you get in uh, when you start music. And so while I was in school, I was just kind of bored. And, you know, I was knocking out um, schoolwork during the day. And then in the afternoons and evenings, I would go intern at Platform. And it was just such an exciting place because they had a loft in Williamsburg. And this is very early Williamsburg in Brooklyn, where it was still like, 
hookers and truck drivers. And I mean, when you're walking there, police officers would be like, what are you doing in this neighborhood? They're like, why are you walking um, like after dark in this neighborhood? Like many times I've got rides from police officers back to the train. They're like, you can't walk by yourself in this neighborhood, get in the car. Um, And, you know, it was just a bunch of us that were all young, hungry, scrappy kids working in this loft. And um, I started out writing. I was just writing music news um, all day. Like I was responsible for five to seven stories a day, writing about different things that were going on in the music industry and out in the world. And um, it was kind of fun just being around your other peers. Like there were skaters that worked there, BMX kids, graphic designers, um, event people, fashion people, all of us just housed in this like warehouse in Brooklyn. And, you know, this is, it ended up, the platform ended up being the company that brought for better or for worse, Vice to America. Um, we worked with Triple Five Soul, Lowdown Magazine, Trace Magazine. So it was really a ground zero for a lot of these companies that started this whole streetwear hype beast um, I hate this word, hate the term extreme sports culture, but that kind of culture where um, young people and the things that they were doing in their free time was, was the focus. Okay. And um, so from there to something like NPR, how did you, yeah. <laughs> you know, of course, I guess there's a jump <laughs> in between, but it's, like, yeah, it's a big one. Um, you know, I was in that world for a long time doing a lot of music journalism, I think, that um, covered uh, music, but always with a, a tinge of culture. And then after I left um, and, you know, that kind of crash of Web 2.0, where just all the money disappeared and all of these web companies that were doing like multi-million dollar parties all bombed out. Um, I ended up freelancing for a very long time that I would just pick up clients and work with them. You know, I worked with Adidas and I wrote their trend reports for about four years where I would kind of tell them what's going on in New York City. They would give me a theme and they'd be like, give us a report. So here's like a 200 page report about everything that's going down in New York City. Did that for a few years. Um, and then, you know, the probably the next couple more recognizable jobs that I had were with um, the magazine, The Fader. Um, I did events over there uh, for about two and a half years. Um, that was a really great time to be there as well, because so many of those people that were on the masthead of the fader and also working at Cornerstone, um, their kind of experiential company. So many of these people now are like the over at Condé Nast on the masthead, like, you know, Will Welsh is the editor-in-chief of GQ, um, Choma Nadi is the um, editor of vogue.com i mean these are folks that i came up with and i was working with them um on a day-to-day -day basis like we're creating and churning out this magazine and doing really amazing events so that was a really great learning ground as well and then you know um i transitioned into uh nightlife for a little period and worked there i think that the the influence of nightlife in new york city at that time cannot be undervalued um, I ended up doing the marketing and kind of like um, kind of PR for this company or excuse me, this venue uh, that was called APT, 
that you're that every once in a while you hear it popping up about like oh the influence of APT it was that influential that we it was a private venue that um, you kind of had to know where it was to get in but some of the most influential DJs in the world spun there I mean everywhere everyone from you know um, James Murphy from DFA and LCD Sound System had a residency with us we brought in like too many DJs, um, Mantronics, um, I, just anybody you could think of that was kind of considered a master of the craft and into the deep crate digging. Um, Bobito had a residency with us, Rich Medina, uh, Negro Clash. Um, it was just a really amazing period um, of what, kind what of that. What time are we talking? What years are we talking? Early 2000s. Um, yeah, early 2000s to mid 2000s. Um, and then it kind of, it continued on in its own, in its own way. But I think that that was the high time. Um, it was after um, 9-11. I mean, I, I remember that whole period of affecting nightlife so much that, you know, people really were scared and you didn't know what to do. So you went out and you partied, like you really, didn't have another day on the planet and I think that that for a period of time built up the nightlife culture not only at places like APT but it also helped build that Brooklyn scene that people talk about you know that TV on the radio came out of that the yeah yeah yeahs came out of um I just think that that period was really influential and APT has a little part in it and then, you know, after that, I, again, went back to freelancing. I just had a really nice roster of clients that I had always worked with and, and people that had always supported me, like, um, you know, Topshop and Spotify and, you know, agencies that came through there um, working in the ad world around music. And then I got this really amazing opportunity to go to NPR. Um, a friend of mine worked at NPR and WNYC. And I saw this posting and I was just like, this sounds amazing. They're looking for somebody to come in and kind of tweak what they're doing with events and kind of their digital platforms. But I was just like, there's no way that they would be looking for somebody like me. And my friend was like, no, they are looking for somebody like you. They're looking for somebody to come in and shake things up. It's like NPR's done things for a very long time in a certain way. They want to shake it up. They know that music is a culture driver and it's a very important part of supporting public media. They need great music coverage and people that know how to speak about it in a clear way. And you have that background as well as kind of the background of knowing what's going on in music. Applied, went through the process, got it, and had five amazing years there working with, as I believe, some of the best music journalists, um, videographers, and cultural critics in the business. And how, so how old were you and how was it for you to like, just, cause when you said they were looking for someone to kind of like come in and change things completely, was it scary for you? Like, I think it was a natural transition for me at that point. Um, I was in my thirties. I was a little, definitely older than many of the people that I was working with, you know, um, at that time, NPR music had a very youngish um, crew that was working there. And so me being in my 30s, I had already gone through a lot of that nightlife, getting it out of my system, the nightlife and going out all of the time and 
And, you know, well, I still see bands all the time, but, you know, going out to a show every night. But for me, that was kind of a version of coming home to the roots I had that, you know, um, constantly writing and being a part of this journalistic tradition. I mean, NPR is 40 plus years old and so respected here in the States and sounds like abroad and um just that kind of gravitas, you know, when I called my mom to tell her I got that job, my mom cried. Like I grew up on NPR. I was an NPR kid um, here in the States. A lot of us joke about being strapped into our car seats in the back while our parents drove around, like listening to NPR. And that's, you know, I had the aversion for a long time. I was like, oh, I don't want to listen to NPR. But as you get older, you realize what a great service is what it was and is still. And that's how I grew up. And literally my mom cried when I got that job she was just like she she for the first time I think she understood what I did that I worked in music and it was translating into something like that but she was like you know this is really close to the stuff that um you were doing while you were in school you're you're with like a really esteemed um organization but you're also getting to combine your love with of of music with that so it, it it really was a golden time for me. And, you know, it, it doesn't hurt. Yeah, you're working at NPR. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, definitely. And I guess you have worked with probably, like, I don't know, a lot of your favorite artists as well. So what's, is there like, like a special memory from that time? You know, one of the things that I really loved is that um, quite a few festivals trusted NPR to be their lead partner. So uh, for five, the five years I was there, I went um, to Newport Folk every year. That is probably one of the most slept on festivals and kind of um, gatherings that's out there. I, I tell everybody that if, if you're a music fan, you need to go. I mean, they've been doing Newport Folk since like, I mean, I, I'm sure I'm wrong about the dates, but since the 40s at least 40s and 50s like it's a very old esteemed festival and they've moved along with the ages and and evolved um along with the music industry and that it's surprising how amazing it is it was like probably one of my favorite things to look forward to each year that you're on the water in Rhode Island um there's this we were next to the main stage so I got to see all of the huge acts and you know, we were their main broadcast partner. So we broadcast um, almost all of the sets for the whole weekend. I saw some of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Um, you know, I got to see Roger Waters from Pink Floyd Soundcheck at 7 a.m. And to hear him do brain damage going over the water at 7 a.m., and um, at that time, the band Lucius was his backup band and his backup singers. And just to hear his voice and their voices blending at seven in the morning, the sun is like just barely in the sky. It's echoing. There's nobody on the field and it's just echoing over the water. I literally cried. <laughs> it's um, that would I, my, make me a morning person, even if I'm not. Yeah, it was <laughs> unbelievable that there were so many people. I mean, I got to see like Beck soundcheck with nobody there and just so many artists that you just loved it. And that, that environment where you're walking around and people are just happy and, and 
as big of a music fan and joyful and excited to be there. Um, that got replicated across many a festival. So um, I did that there, South by Southwest, oh. um, Americana Fest. Um, I was on the road a lot at NPR because we did do the broadcast. So um, I got very privileged and special um, access to some of the most amazing music sets I've ever seen in my life. And I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, it's uh, honestly, it's like, sounds like my dream job. <laughs> it's so a good one. I think if anybody ever has that opportunity as a music fan to to kind of get up as close as possible to see the art and the craft of music being made, like if you could ever check out a sound check or you get to see an artist kind of like do like an, an unplugged or something very small, take that opportunity because I think those are where those special moments come in that you, you just love and resonate through your body and you'll always remember. Definitely. I think the sound check moment especially is just so precious because it's 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 so rare to like get to see it. But even even like a, a small kind of like showcase in a, in a small venue, that kind of stuff is it's special as well. Okay, so you were there for five years. And then um, again, I'm not too sure about the gaps, but of course now you work for Sonos and you've been there for quite some time. And if I'm not mistaken, you were... Um, previously working within the experiential events, kind of like music and, and, and retail and a few different bits and pieces, you can tell me more about it, um, area. And now you've moved on to the um, the Sonos radio, so curating and, and again, you can tell me more yep. about it. So yes, how's it going? Really good. Yeah, I was at NPR for five years and then um, I was really uh, quite lucky that Sonos reached out to me and they were looking for someone to come in and help guide um, a specific project in the experiential world. They have a retail, they had a retail space in New York City that was um, called 101 Green. That was the corporate flagship. And they were looking to add an events component to it. Um, very highly curated, very bespoke well thought out events that they wanted to just present to um, customers and clientele that people could just attend and walk into. And, you know, they also mentioned, you know, there's a really great opportunity to do this on a global scale. And that's the word that literally was that kind of click moment where I was like, oh, global. I haven't had a chance to reach out and do that. You know, a lot of the things I've done have been primarily at that time in the US. And so to hear that this kind of global technology, software, product, music company is looking to do this, it was absolutely something that I jumped at. So joined on with Sonos and yeah, um, I've been with them for five years. Uh, I was working on the um, America's experiential team and then kind of expanded out to the global experiential team, which was amazing to do um, all sorts of events, you know, where you got to do album release parties and conversations with artists. Because I think those sort of moments where you get those nuggets of understanding where an artist is coming from and what their influences are those translate really really well for events um surprisingly it's like you know sitting someone down and asking them about like what's your process how do you listen what did you grow up with in your home what did you hear 
um, that's what, uh, as a music fan, I'd want to hear. And to do that and to experience an event like that in a small, intimate space really, really worked. And as Sonos promised, we kind of took that globally, that we took that experience of bringing your favorite artists to um, a store space, an event space, and setting that up that you got that time and that care and you got to listen to your favorite music on really amazing products and speakers. And um, that's been a great joy. And then, you know, a couple of years ago, I got approached by some of the leadership within Sonos and they were like, look, we're thinking about expanding out and creating this product and division where we have our own streaming and radio channels. We know that you have a background in music and music industry and music curation. We know that, you know, you've been doing that for pretty much across your career. Would you be interested in joining on with this? And, you know, I leapt at it. I leapt at it with a tiny bit of trepidation because, you know, that's a really big switch for a brand to try and jump into that industry. Um, there's always some questions about, oh, is this just a ploy to like sell more products or do these people really even understand it or how are you doing this? But once I understood that Sonos was trying to provide human curation into this kind of field where, you know, there was a really kind of personalized touch and it's coming from a place of love. You know, Sonos is a company that was founded by music fans. Uh, it was music fans that were looking for a better and um, more affordable solution to a premium product. Um, and, you know, that's what sold me that I was just like, I got the promise that, you know, we're going to do this as a media company and we're going to do this as um, a full on healthily thought out project, not just kind of something that we're throwing up against the wall and, oh, okay, that kind of didn't work. We're just going to move away from it. So it's been a really fun experience. You know, we've, again, like been doing this for, um, we've been on the air two years as of next month, which is amazing. And um, just to be able to bring really amazing, engaging content to listeners and if they're able to hear it in um, amazing sound and the way that we wanted to put it out is a gift every day. And in, in terms of like exactly what, what's, what's your day like, like what's your job like in like what kind of like decisions do you have to make in terms of curating and directing the different channels? Well, I'm now the executive producer of um, Sonos Radio as a whole. So it can be quite varied. It, um, you know, typically I wake up, I scroll through emails to just check and see if there's been any explosions overnight because, you know, Sonos is a global company. So I have colleagues that are working in multiple countries, multiple time zones at all times. Um, you know, a lot of my day is probably talking with and um, producing a lot of these shows with my hosts, um, going over, you know, scripts, show ideas, talent ideas, pitching, um, just checking in generally. Um, a lot of listening, as you can imagine. I mean, we're putting out an average of three or three to five shows a week. Um, so I'm listening to a lot of stuff and I'm listening usually two to three weeks out. 
So there's a lot coming on. Um, <laughs> anybody will tell you about Sonos. People love to have meetings at Sonos. So I'm on Zoom calls pretty much from, I would say like noon till four o'clock. Um, so I'm kind of balancing all of my other duties in the middle of that. Sonos people love a meeting. It's kind of hilarious. Um, and then, you know, as well, I there are p- certain periods I'm pretty intense in seeking new programming and um, accepting pitches in from people. So there's a lot of time where I'm researching like ideas that may hit my desk or, you know, if I, there's a, a DJ or a music thinker or a curator that I really like. And I'm kind of like, give me, people will always tell you that I always say, give me your papa bear, mama bear, baby bear ideas. So I put that out there and, and I'm receiving those back from people or like, you know, I'll be like, has there ever been a show about like stagehands? Has there ever been a show about, um, black political movements. I mean, just thinking of ideas all the time and trying to figure out how we flush them out and make them a reality. So that's probably the general scope of my day. It's a lot of production, a lot of um, brainstorming, thought, thought producing. And, you know, those quieter moments are when you get those curatorial things, you know, sometimes I'll just be sitting typing and I'll think of a couple songs and I'll just throw them into a Spotify folder and then add them to our rotation later. And it, it's just the moments when I get them, um, I take them. Again, sounds um, like a great job to me. <laughs> um, it's pretty fun. Like, you know, this this kind of movement and, and, and transition back into radio and just people... I think the the pandemic made it very clear to folks how important like radio and like hearing the human voice and, you know, feeling something through your music and feeling something through the content that comes into your home since we're spending a lot of time there was really important. So I think that that's the reason, you know, a lot of people have gravitated towards Sonos Radio. It's like they feel that human connection and, you know, the people that are producing shows for us put a lot of thought and their time into it and you can feel it. So We've been a pro- we've been really proud to be able to offer that content during a pretty tough time in a lot of people's lives. And I guess uh, together with the human connection, of course, you also have the curation. So the cultural intersection mm-hmm. with the music is not just an algorithm making a playlist for you. Like you know, it may be working perfectly for some people, but it's it's the research, is the kind of like work that goes behind it. And then of course, the association association with the person who's actually telling you that story. Absolutely. Um, You know, there's a really killer team. Um, This is definitely not all me by any means. There's a killer team. Um, We have our global head of music. We have like great leads of production, our PR, social, that we all work together. We're a very high performing team, which is, I mean, there's only literally five of us on our team and we make this happen. And, um, you know, um, we did think like, as you mentioned, that these moments during a global pandemic and times of of uncertainty we sat and thought about these kind of like mood and genre stations that kind of like dip into like what people are experiencing at home it's like you know sometimes you need we're not sleeping well we have a bevy of sleep stations that we actually sat down and curated and thought about about how people sleep and can de-stress after a really tough day of like dealing with you know 
things out in the world as well as like managing your family and your kids and you had to cook a meal and you know you know we try to just think across all of those lines and I think it's given us a lot of pride that we're not just like cranking and like okay here we'll just like input this in and we need a great cooking playlist what is it um, we actually think about this and like, you know, you get that moment where you can have a drink of wine, like the first time during the day while you're kind of like over your skillet, like what, what goes along with that? And like, how do you de-stress a little bit or how do you amp yourself up or how do you rev the kids down? But yeah, we, we try to think about all of these things. You, these meetings we have are pretty funny sometimes. I was going to say you have a lot of meetings, so it sounds like you discuss this kind of stuff a lot. <laughs> Um, and so let's say um, someone who nowadays is, you know, an epic playlist maker, like the kind of person that a circle of friends would go to and ask for music recommendations, you know, you know the story, right? What kind of like other skills they would need to get into a similar role to your, like, or just like similar career path to yours? You know, I think that sometimes that varies. You know, I think that the keys to my success are that I have a really distinct emotional connection to music. I am one of those people that fully cries to music and fully gets involved in songs. And I listen for like those epic notes or those really bassy bottoms. And, you know, um, also... I love going down a wormhole about music. So that's my key to success that um, if I hear one song, I'm probably, and I love it. And I know nothing about that group. There's good odds. I'm probably going to go on Wikipedia or Google that band and find out like what they've done before or like what, what region they're from or who are their contemporaries in the space. And that's where I start building lines you know one of my greatest um one of the ones that I love to like just go down um wormholes with is I love African music and you know just looking at eras and um geographical zones and political situations and looking at um spokespeople and the role of women and the role of like you know everything and I mean those things put together that's where I start building like bases of knowledge and playlists and things like that I use history as well I'm an avid history nut um I for a lot of years I thought I was going to go into history and I ended up choosing political science instead but I still use that aspect of history um to create music playlists and and the way that I listen you know that this these staples of like the great migration and looking at regionality, that's what created jazz and that's what created the blues and that's what created these things. You know, I, I, I deep dive and, and nerd out into it. I, I would say for people that are looking for how to make themselves a better listener. And if this was something that you wanted to do as a career, find out what your, your touch points are. Are you good at, um, if you're like a kid that loves hype beat culture, um hype beast culture excuse me figure out like who are the people that are leading it what were their influences what are they looking at historically where did this all come from what was the soundtrack behind that movement and probably you could take that 20 years back and you're going to listen to really great music like 
you know, a lot of this stuff that we're listening to now is not unique. This was happening in the 90s. It was happening in the 70s. There's always cultural movements. Um, just deep dive, I think, a little bit more and, you know, find out what your strengths are. If it's reading, history, you know, culture, your love fashion, um, see where music touch is the touch point to each one of those little things. And I think you can always um, create a nice lane for yourself. And so I guess research and kind of like deep diving into, again, culture. So the connection between music and many other things, not just music in itself. Absolutely. Is a, great, a great point. But also, I guess, in terms of like the practical job that, that you're doing now and that you've done in the past, um, you have to have some sort of like social skills as well. And I know that like in, in my experience as well, like I think I'm usually comfortable with people that I don't know, but... Um, at the same time, that's not necessarily one of my strengths to like just enter a room, whether it's virtual or real and, and like just introduce myself and, and kind of like push who I am and what I do. You know, I have such a big love for music. That doesn't mean that I'm really good at conveying it, especially to people that I don't know. So how do you develop those skills? Because I guess they're important as well, right? Yeah, I think. But, you know, I think with the invention of the Internet and, you know, apps like Spotify and other kind of aggregators of music, it's made it much easier. You know, for me growing up, I think that the drive and the need to become part of a music community really built this up. You know, once I got to an age where my parents were like, okay, you can start going to concerts and things like that. You know, you start building your tribe. You have your friends that you meet up with and you hang out with and you make the the pilgrimage to the show together. And then, you know, there's that moment like when the show ends and everybody is just standing on the floor and you're just like milling. I met so many people like you just wave to folks and you're just like, hi. Um, I think that process is important. You know, there is being 100% honest. If you're going to get pretty deep into like the music industry networking is a key like you need to learn some facet of networking it's like is it going to shows and meeting people there and you know if you start recognizing the same faces that are going to the same shows go ahead and say hi to that person that's what I did that's like once um you know when I moved to New York City I only knew my academic friends I had to meet a whole nother set of friends um, and that's what I did. It's like, I went to shows and I would see the same people, um, there. And I would just start saying hi, if I was doing my intern work and I was outside handing flyers out or something, and I saw the same people that were handing out flyers for other events, I became friends with them as well. Um, I think you do have to stretch your boundaries a little bit, but, you know, in a weird sort of way, um, if you don't want to, you don't have to these days. Things like Spotify and other apps like that make it so easy to just be an instant, like, kind of expert in music. You don't have to, like, put your nose in music magazines as much as I used to when I was a kid. Like, you know, I had subscriptions to every music magazine, and then I got jobs at bookstores so I could afford, like, British and international music magazines so I could learn everything. I think that now you just get on the internet and, and like get on Instagram and get on TikTok and you find your communities there if you wanted to. And, you know, you might not even have to ever meet somebody. You could just have TikTok friends that you talk music about and have like kind of, you know, those kind of worship like 
groups and 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 crews that love bands i mean think about like the billy eilish like fans the fans that just all meet each other online and only st- probably started meeting each other within the last couple of years as she blew up but that was a, a lot of it was online through her online work so I think you need to look at every route. If you're looking to get very serious into it, you do have to exercise a few, I think, social skills to meet people, to network a little bit, Um, taking an internship. But I think you have to come in and understand that music, as I've always said, music eats young blood. Um, Music industry really focuses and runs on young labor. expect that you're going to probably go into a lot of jobs and not get paid. You're, you're paying in sweat and you're paying in like equity and cool equity and just the access that you're getting. But hopefully if it's something that you feel like you really want to do, you're going to progress and you may make a little bit of money and you may not just be out there handing out flyers for a year like I did. So I like that you kind of like touched on my, my next question, which was going to be about the age kind of like matter so the music industry and creative industries per se are definitely um, environments that we think about and we, we instantly just think about young people young cool people that never get married never have a family always kind of like leave that lifestyle and you know it could be partly true but at the same time we need to take into account that especially in this moment in time after a pandemic or during a pandemic a lot of people in their 30s and 40s as well have realized that the life that they're living is not the life that they want to live. And so there has been this like movement towards more creative professions and like hobbies and like just turning your passions into a job and this kind of stuff. So I guess my question is, um, especially related to all the resources and communities that, for example, you know, women in music, can access now which is amazing you know through the internet and all that and locally as well there seem to be quite a lot of focus on you know young people and so people that are less than 30 years old and it feels like if you're older than that you have less resources and less access to a sort of like switch in your career and I think it would be nice to I kind of want to know your take on this, but I think it's just, uh, I think it's something that needs to be talked about a little bit more because there's, there are many things that a young person can do, but the fact that you're an, an, an aspiring music creator doesn't mean that you're 20 year old, years old. You may be 36 and still want to pursue that, you know? Yeah, it's um, ageism in music and especially around women is a huge issue. Um it's extraordinarily hard. Like I will say that, you know, men of any age in the music industry, like you see people like Clive Davis that are still at the top of their game and aren't really having to be challenged as much about um, their knowledge or what they do or who they have access to. Um, That distinctively changes when you focus it on a woman. Um, As of a few years ago, it, it seemed like such a rarity to me to find women over 50, women over 60 that are in leadership positions in the music industry. It's sadly a rarity. And, it, and it's sort of, 
scary. It's a little bit um, depressing on some ends. You know, I'm in my 40s now. And even I, there are those moments where I, I wonder, it's like, is there a shelf date that's put on my knowledge, even though I still feel like I'm kind of at the top of my game right now. Um, and I, I feel that, you know, I entered into all of this very late. I entered in my like mid twenties um, after I decided to shift out of academia. Um, so I feel like I came in at a deficit and I've needed all of these years to gather up this knowledge and the base of what I know and the people that I've known. I mean, I've been doing music industry stuff for like 23 years now. Um, so it's kind of tough where you feel like, okay, at, at 50, you should be done or looking to downshift or do something different. Um, it's, it, it's definitely hard. And especially when you think about that women honestly run the music industry if you think about publicists are very overwhelmingly women in the music industry um there's so many more like women that are behind the decks and are getting into production and kind of getting into those um areas of the industry in in sound um women are really kind of jumping into those fields not as much as we want but um I think that there's going to have to be a great reckoning about women getting involved, you know, and like you mentioned before, there's a lot more women that are choosing not to have children. It's like, I, I don't have kids. And, you know, I kind of made a, at a point, a commitment to myself that, you know, I was going to focus on my career, my career progression and seeing how far I could get. Um, for people coming into this, I would recommend that I think that if you're having those challenges, that's the moment where you're going to have to figure out your own lane. I think that, you know, the industry does rely. And if you see the movement that even with the artists that are on stage, they're getting younger and younger and younger. Um, I actually really, it's kind of funny that you brought this up, posted a meme yesterday on my Instagram about that this guy made that he was like, how come you don't see middle-aged people um, as pop stars anymore like you used to see folks like Tina Turner and Phil Collins and you know Peter Gabriel and all of these folks but now it's just it's literal children that are the chart toppers and kind of directing what's going on um, it's very much the same behind the scenes that it's you know kids are coming straight out of school and they're landing into um, coordinator jobs and manager jobs and they're growing and you know a lot of them will have really great titles and progress and they're not even 30 yet or they're just hitting their 30s i think that it is a challenge and it's something that the industry needs to think about this access and um this reliance on youth um i i think i would just best suggest that if you're having difficulties maybe that's a sign that it's time for you to find your own lane in it. Um, that's why I think, you know, the indie indie route is great. People that are going on and using apps and things like TikTok and, you know, um, SoundCloud and MixCloud, the way that you determine the way that your music and the way that you work can be put out into the world. But 
I'm sorry I don't have better news about that, but it is very challenging, unfortunately, um, for folks and especially women. And I mean, we haven't even gotten into like people of color of a certain age doing this. I mean, it's pretty tough um, to get beyond those perceptions of there's a certain box of who gets to lead in the music industry. And I think that we have a lot of work to do around that. And, you know, that's why I take great pride that I'm in my forties and I'm still doing this. And, you know, I get to lead and, and direct from my end of, of the industry and hoping that I can still continue to progress and do that in the future. I guess the kind of like following question would be, what do you think are the, the more important resources that, an aspiring music creator or someone who wants to enter the industry in a similar way that, you know, like as, as you did would have to rely on nowadays. I mean, of course the internet has got potentially everything. How can you filter and know where your tribe and, and like the people that you have to connect to are? I think you kind of mentioned it at the top that looking for resource groups like women in music, um, Women in Sound. Um, we are. Um, I'm actually really excited to be a soundboard member of a of a group called We Are Moving the Needle, which is for women that are working to make significant change in the music industry. Um, there's just not enough representation. I think it is looking for those groups and those um, organizations and the nonprofits, and you know, looking for other people that are in the in the same area you're working get together even if it is just sending a cold email or a quick bounce on um ig to somebody being like hey i like what you're doing have can i get an informational call with you to like talk about what you're doing or can i just kind of like look below like look under the hood and see what you're up to um i think you have to look at every resource now because the industry is just so inundated with so much stuff and you know, everything is the great equalizer now, you know, all of these apps and there's so much music for people to choose from. And there's so many ways that you can get involved in music. You just, you've got to find every resource available. Start with the groups, um, find your tribe. I'm, I'm sure there is something for everybody now. Like, I mean, there's groups for women in African music. There's groups for women from Asian Pacific Islander groups. And, you know, find your tribe and and get together with them and like I think that you have to be in a group to kind of bust these doors down open and make significant change absolutely I guess again connected to this is is the fact that it can be overwhelming to be constantly online and doing basically trying to turn your main passion into your job yes I know it personally I'm sure you do as well so I'd like to know if you have any sort of like tools or, you know, rituals or however you want to call them that you rely on to ensure that you're able to focus on something else. Like, you know, are you able to put on a record and not think about, you know, work or anything that's, that's actually taking your attention that much? Are you, are you still able to sort of like switch off and, and dedicate to something else? And I guess you have to. Yeah, you have to, um, on the work front, I've in the, you know, I will say the pandemic 
situation really illuminated to me about my um, workaholic tendencies. I think being at home and constantly having the laptop in front of me and now with these tools like Zoom and Slack and things like that made me realize that you can be, if you don't watch it, you can be online and and working 24-7 and your brain will never shut off. I've had to put very serious parameters around myself that at a certain time, the laptop is down. I'm done. Um, I'm decompressing. I have to be online, even though I'm on Instagram a lot and Twitter, but um, at least the work portion of that is over. Um, I do listen to a lot of music at home. Um, I probably listen to a lot more different different genres that I probably listen to at work. You know, a lot of our content um, is very, you know, has a lot of focus, but I probably listen to a lot more instrumental music at home. Um, I actually, before bed, listen to a lot of like sleep meditation to like get my, like a meditative music to like get myself like kind of wound down. Um, I cook a lot. Um, for me, that's a sign. Like when the laptop's closed, I make that ritual of like, okay, decompress a little bit, make a meal to get my mind off of it. Think about something else that needs its own ritual. Um, one of the funnier things is that, you know, if I ever get into like a car service, like an Uber or a Lyft or whatever, I typically ask them to turn the music off. I don't like if it's not my car or being in a car. I like complete silence when I'm in those and I just need that time. I use that time to decompress myself as well, especially in the past, if I was going from like a work thing to like a show or something like that, I use that as my time to like decompress. I never, I, I think that they get very annoyed that I'm sometimes like, hey, I'm sorry, um, I work in music. I hear music all day. I just need a little silence. Do you mind turning it off? Um, and I'm trying to get better at um, communicating and making time to talk with friends, even if it is just through the phone or whatever. I think that kind of disconnect from constantly cycling on work, especially since I work in, you know, creative and cultural things where you're constantly needing to be on. It's nice to deconnect or disconnect and talk with friends that maybe don't work in that area and are talking about real things <laughs> and living real experiences helps a lot. So yeah, you have to, to grasp at those tools because um, the way things are with like cultural movements and you know, cool stuff and music stuff is that you can always be on it. Just, it never stops and you can get wrapped up into that really quickly. I think it's, it's interesting that you said, just like, just mentioning about just chatting to your friends about stuff that's not work related, but when you work, when you do something like you do, the, um, contamination with like cultural stuff is always there, right? Especially on social media. I think, one thing that I like to do is just because sometimes when you when you when you hear people saying like talking about the things that you should be doing to move your focus out of your job and that kind of stuff, there's always like reading books and like get really intellectual about other things. And I actually really love to, I don't know, send stupid videos or memes. Do you know what I mean? Like it's one of the things that um, it it doesn't require me to use my brain as much I think it's also the uh the amount of like just literally the, the headspace 
that I'm using, that's that's enough for me to sort of like decompress, and then maybe I can read a book as well. So that one hundred percent, yeah. I think the last thing that I want to get from you, if you want to share it, is um, where are the best places to look for new music? Because of course, you know, we know how it is. The majority of people rely heavily on Spotify and the algorithm. And if it's not Spotify, is you know, Apple Music or whatnot. And while it's a great tool, because of course it wasn't there uh, back in the day, there, there is so much more. There's so much more music beyond an algorithm. So I'm, I'm curious to know what are your favorite places or whether intentional or not intentional to find new music. I mean, I think the ultimate is talking with friends. Um, I love just like hearing what my friends are listening to or um, I'm the worst. Like I will look over so if somebody's like phone DJing or um, there's music in their car. I'm the worst at like totally doing the lean and look. Um, also, I am notorious. My friends say I'm so embarrassing, but I don't care. Um, I'm a Shazammer. I literally will Same. be in a bar and hold my phone up and like, shiz- I, it's There's really no ridiculous. Shame. No, shame. no shame. You have to do it. You do what you got to do. Yeah, I, I am the worst about that. Like I, I'm fully like friends will see me like scramble to find my phone in my bag and my arm is up at a restaurant. They're like, please stop doing that. <laughs> um, I still look at the the websites and um, like, pitchfork is a really great place i mean pitchfork is just like kind of a one-stop shop to see like what came out that week and what i should be listening to um i also still support um independent journalism and music like magazines like wax poetics and maggot brain and you know wired things that um tell you about the different side of music um that maybe isn't as mainstream but um yeah, I feel very lucky um, working at Sonos. There's a lot of like music nerds like me that just, and we have Slack channels that just talk about new music. So people just drop things in. That's pretty awesome that you just have a constant running flow of music. Um, really great music nerd friends that just have no shame um, about telling about music. I still go record shopping quite a bit. Um yeah, I, I, I'll take music suggestions from wherever they come from. Just throw it at me and I'll take it. Do you Shazam in a record shop? I have. I have. Me too. <laughs> they don't like it very much. No, especially I know. Some That's of why the, I'm asking you. Yeah, some of the nerdy places here in the city just get very angry about it. But I'm like, look, I might buy the album. So you should be, you be should happy. Be I into bought, it. Yeah. yeah, I bought many an album off of a... Uh, a turntable to record store being like what is that they'll tell me and I'm like when you're done with that song I'll take that album just just give me the album so sounds good to me I'm done with the questions thank you so 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 much oh thank you this is so great